0: You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. So in 1947, a man named Chuck Yeager, test pilot, born in West Virginia, got inside a tiny plane that was inside a bigger plane, He had uh, recently been thrown from a horse and broke three ribs because Chuck Yeager was a cowboy. And so as he went to close the lid of the plane, the smaller plane and the bigger plane, he had to use a broom handle because he couldn't quite turn all the way. And yet he hadn't told his superior officers about the injury because he knew if he told him about his injury, they'd kick him out of the plane. Chuck Yeager was then taken up in the big plane while he's inside the tiny plane. And then this big plane dropped the tiny plane out of the bottom of it. That tiny plane powered by rockets known as the Bell X-1 would then begin to fly faster than any man-made craft had ever flown. And in that moment, in 1947, Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier. He was the first human to go supersonic. And if you'd been in the Mojave Desert that day as he flew above you, you would have heard the first ever sonic boom which was a super loud event. At the time in history, probably one of the loudest man-made noises to have happened. And it was loud in several ways, not just in noise, a sonic boom can be heard for miles and miles, but it was loud in significance because breaking the sound barrier meant that there was a whole new world open to humanity as far as supersonic travel and space travel went. Because up until that moment, they didn't know if a human could survive going faster than the speed of sound But Chuck Yeager proved it. And so it was loud in noise, but also loud in significance of what man could achieve, of what was possible as far as going to the moon would happen. What would happen in space travel? Now, I've thought about this idea of loud noises and I like to think of like, what is the loudest noise I have experienced? And I think probably the loudest noise I experienced was just across the road at the Bristol Motor Speedway. And I'm not talking about like the race itself. I'm talking about right after the national anthem is over and the first time I got to go to a race at the Bristol Motor Speedway, I did not know this was about to happen, but three jets came and buzzed like right above us. And this was when I was in college, which was recently after September 11. And so I was terrified when these jets flew over, like I'm looking for exits and I am screaming. That had to have been the loudest noise I've ever heard. But then when it comes to noises that are loud in significance, if not volume, I think the loudest noise I ever heard in significance was probably during the ultrasound we were having for our first child. And so we're in that room, right, and the lights are kind of dim, and there's a screen, and they're showing us stuff, and they're like, this is your kid. And I'm like, why does it have a tail? Like, and it looks nothing like a human. Like, we're talking first ultrasound, probably like six weeks or so into pregnancy. But then there was this noise, this, and I didn't know what that was. And so I asked the the ultrasound tech, I'm like, well, what is that noise? And she's like, that's the heartbeat. And I was like, the heartbeat, like all the oxygen left the room because up until that moment, I'd been told there was a baby inside my wife, but now I could hear the heartbeat of this six-week-old living creature and the sound of that, the significance of that sound changed me forever. So there is loudness in terms of noise and volume, but there's also loudness in significance. Here's something else I've noticed. There can be, and this may sound like an oxymoron, but there can be a loudness in silence sometimes. Have you ever heard a loud silence? If you've ever told somebody I love you and there's no response, that's a loud silence, right? Very loud. Parents know the loud silence. There is a silence in between the thud and the cry of a child. You guys know what I'm talking about? You hear the thud and then you're waiting for the cry and the longer that silence is, you know, the bigger the cry is and the quicker you better get to there. That is a loud silence, right? We, uh, if you've this week been out to maybe a restaurant or something, my wife and I went to a restaurant last night and they had a, a table set with Veterans Day being this week. They had an empty table set for the veterans that didn't come home. And in the midst of a loud restaurant with loud and noisy laughing tables, the silence of that one empty table was very loud. So as we think about, and this can just be a discussion question for you at lunch today, as you think about the noises in your life, what's been the loudest noise you've heard maybe in volume, but then What's been the loudest noise you've heard in significance? But beyond that, what's the loudest silence you've ever heard? And Chuck Yeager at his time made a sonic boom. It was one of the loudest man-made noises in history up to that time. But I'd argue this morning in Mark chapter 14, we get to what is the loudest silence in all of history. And it comes at the trial of Jesus. So if you've been with us for, I don't even know how long now, as we've been going through the book of Mark, we've gotten up to the trial of Jesus. And there's been this lingering question all throughout Mark about Jesus. Mark sets up his gospel to ask one question, who is this man? And so we see moving through Mark, there's this constant theme of Jesus's identity. Who is he? Jesus is constantly misunderstood. In Mark two seven, the religious leaders they don't get who Jesus is, and they're like, "Who's this man? He, he's blaspheming. He can't forgive the sins." Mark three twenty one, Jesus's own family doesn't get it. They say he's out of his mind. In Mark four twelve, the crowds are misunderstanding Jesus's parables. They're seeing but not perceiving. They're hearing but not understanding. Mark five seventeen, there's foreigners after Jesus cast many demons out of a man. These foreigners are scared, and they say they beg Jesus to leave. They see there's something crazy about him. They're like, get out of here. In Mark 6, 3, the locals in Jesus's own hometown don't get it. And they say things like, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Don't we have his brothers and his sisters here with us? And then in Mark 18 or eight eighteen, his own disciples don't get it after Jesus has told them these parables and they don't understand. There's a continued misunderstanding about who is Jesus. And there's this constant question of who is this man? The crowds ask it in Mark 6 too, They say, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that's been given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? The disciples, after Jesus calms the storm, are in the boat and they fall to their knees. and They say, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? And then even Jesus pushes the question when he gets aside with his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? Mark writes his gospel so that that question of who is Jesus is put right in our laps. And Jesus never quite clearly answers that question. In fact, often it feels like he's avoiding the topic of his identity with some people. So he'll heal people and he'll tell them, don't tell anybody. See that you tell nobody of this healing. Even the demons will recognize and will say, this is the son of God. But then Jesus will strictly order them not to make him known. And so Jesus sort of avoids this concept of his identity. And then we have the religious leaders who are constantly pestering Jesus about who he is. And so we see in Mark eight eleven the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, to say, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? And for the Pharisees, his signs of healing weren't enough. His miracles weren't enough. The fulfillment of prophecy seen in Jesus, it wasn't enough to reveal to them, the experts in the law, of who Jesus was. And so there's a great irony when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, which Matt talked about last week. When the Pharisees have not been able to identify Jesus, and even though he's given them sign after sign, and so they ask Judas, give us a sign, Give us a sign so that we know who he is. And Judas goes up to Jesus in the garden and he kisses him as a sign to religious leaders that this is Jesus. The irony in that, which was totally lost on me until my wife were sitting where you guys are last week listening to Matt preach, and Christy leans over and tells me that little sermon of a tidbit. If you want a good sermon, like just tune me out and find wherever Christy is. She's probably saying or we next to her, you'll get a way better sermon. But over and over and over in the book of Mark, we hear this idea, who is Jesus? It's put in our lapse that question. So then we get to Mark 14 and everything has reached this boiling point. We've had this moment in the garden where a mob with torches goes after, after Jesus to arrest him. There's ears flying off. There's a guy running around naked and everything is going crazy. And then they get Jesus before daylight into this private room and they have a whole council, a whole trial for Jesus. And it starts out in Mark 14, verse 53. And it says they led Jesus to the high priest and the chief of priests and the elders and the scribes all came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another, not with my hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And he, the high priest, stood up in the middle, in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. It's the loudest silence in history. And we have to ask why? Because Jesus has been put on this like sham of a trial. If you we were to go through like the Jewish rules and laws about like how a trial is supposed to be held, I mean, there are several illegal things happening by their own rules in this trial. Here's just a few. No trial was to be held during feast time. And we know that they're right at the time of Passover, Jesus on trial. No trial was to be held at night. This trial was held before dawn. We know the rooster hasn't even crowed yet, right? Like Peter is still waiting on that. Jesus had no counsel or representation. You're supposed to have that. Each member was to vote individually. We later hear that they voted as a crowd in one voice. And then if the death penalty was given, a night was supposed to pass before the sentence was carried out. But between the time of Jesus's trial and the cross passes a matter of hours. And so there's several things wrong with this trial by their own law. So these guys that are the keepers of the law, the champions of the law, they've set it up and now they break their own law. And yet Jesus doesn't say a thing. I mean, if that were to happen today, there would be outrage, right? Like, Sarah Koenig would come down and make a 12-part podcast on it. There'd be people like protesting about this trial. Later on, like there would be a trial about the trials and the people holding the trial would then be on trial. That's how it would go today. And so you would expect for Jesus to say like, hey, uh, am I not supposed to have some sort of lawyer or something? Like, hey, shouldn't this like not happen at nighttime? Like, why are you guys being so secretive? But instead he makes no answer. And so in total, we see this. We see that Jesus has taken on three to, to six different trials. There's three sort of religious trials, and then there's three civil trials where he's taken before Herod and Pilate. And all over, we see that Jesus is silent. So after the Jewish council puts him on trial, they take him to Pilate. And then Pilate says, "I, ah, it's not my business. He hands him over to Herod. And then at Herod, we hear in Luke 23, 9, Herod questions Jesus at some length, but he made no answer. So once again, Jesus is silent. Then he sent back to Pilate. And Pilate, we're told in Mark 15, Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, "You, you have said so. So Jesus makes an answer then. But then Pilate says, the chief priests accused him, or not Pilate, but the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So that Pilate was amazed. Why is he silent? Why didn't he call out their injustice? Why didn't he call out their hypocrisy? Why doesn't he make some sort of like defense for himself? Why didn't he tell them like, hey, I've been peaceful. I've been, I've been teaching out in public for a long time. I'm trying to help people. I've been healing people. Why didn't he defend himself? I think there's several reasons for Jesus' silence that I, that I like to break down and look through. I, I think this shows a little bit of Jesus' authenticity, right? His silence reflects his authenticity. Because if he'd gotten up there and he's like fighting them about all this stuff or trying to like, you know, accuse them back and all this stuff, what would, what would we think about his teaching of blessed are the peacemakers in Mark 5, 9? What would he think about Matthew five eleven where it says, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. What would we think of those words if when they accused Jesus of blasphemy, he's like, I know you are, but what am I, right? This guy doesn't follow his own teaching. And so we see his, 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 his silence there shows he's authentic. He, he practices what he preaches. We also see that this silence, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. If we went back, way back, like 800 years back to the book of Isaiah, we read this in Isaiah 53, 7. It says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like sheep that before the shearer is silent so he opened not his mouth. This was written 800 years or more before Jesus' birth and here we see it fulfilled in their presence. So if his birth alone wasn't enough to show them that the prophecies of Isaiah had been fulfilled, prophecies like Isaiah 7:4 7, 7:14 which we love at Christmas time, behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, he shall be called Emmanuel. If they didn't see his birth fulfilled those prophecies, if they didn't notice his life fulfilled Isaiah's prophecies, like the one in Isaiah 35, 5, where it says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. If they don't see it in his birth or in his life, they're not gonna see it right here at his trial when he's silent before them. So it's like Jesus knows he's got all this prophecy that speaks for him. He doesn't have to speak for himself. So silence shows that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And I think the biggest thing that Jesus' silence reveals in the book of Mark, it reveals the answer to that question we've been pushed to ask over and over and over again, of who is this man? It shows that he is the son of God, right? Those prophecies now reflect to it. It shows that he is the king. And the king doesn't have to answer questions. It shows that he is legitimately the Messiah. And so he, he is God. He is of God. He doesn't have to do anything about it. It shows he has no fear of death because he's the one that will conquer death. And so our big question of who is this man is revealed in this. And that prophecy expands it. If we go back to Isaiah 53, verse four, it says, "'Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows.'" and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. That silence reveals Jesus's authenticity, that he is the fulfillment of the prophecy. It reveals his identity, that he is God, standing with them now, that he is the Messiah. But more than that, I think this silence proves his ardency which is a fancy word that ends in the E sound, which is what I was really looking to connect all these together, identity and prophecy and ardency. But it means passion. It means being zealous. We see Jesus' passionate love for us, for humanity in his silence in that moment. It reveals that the fact that he will be silent in the face of injustice, it reveals that he's putting us before himself. The fact that he would be silent, even though he's being taken advantage of, It shows his love for us, right? Because at any moment, we know he could command armies of angels to come and rescue him. We know that the guy that walked on water could easily like walk out of that place. We know that the guy that can bring people back from the dead could probably bring some calamity on the people that have put him on trial. And yet Jesus chooses to stay silent. He chooses not to make a defense for himself because he knows what it's gonna mean when they find him guilty. He knows it means his death on the cross and he is not running from it. He is not fighting it because he is passionately and seriously in love with you and with me. His silence shows his great love for us. So Jesus was silent so that he could silence death. Jesus didn't speak a word at his trial so that the sound of death, which we have felt all throughout history, could once and for all be quieted. He was silent for us. And so the rest of the trial goes on. We've already mentioned some of this, but as we hop on, they continue to, in this particular spot, the council continues to drill Jesus with questions. And in verse six of chapter 14, it says again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Am. All throughout Mark, he's sort of skirted that question. He's never answered it clearly. This is the one time where Jesus says, without a doubt, I am the Son of God, I am the Christ, the Messiah. And he answers that question in the same words that God used to reveal himself to Moses. Now, in this moment, God in flesh reveals himself to his very enemies. And then it says, He answers, continues saying, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Here he quotes Psalm 110 and, and Daniel 7, which both proclaim about the Messiah. And then he says, in the high, it says then that the high priest tore his garment. And he said, what further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as the serving, deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face, and to strike him, saying, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So after this, the disciples hide. They've scattered. They're nowhere to be found. They're not backing up Jesus. Peter is out in a courtyard. He's been asked two times. He's about to be asked a third time if he knows Jesus, and he denies knowing Jesus. And then the rooster crows, and the sun begins to rise. And Jesus is taken over to Pilate. And there with Pilate, they're going to decide that we want Barabbas, this criminal, this murderer, we want Barabbas to be released. Take Jesus. They have him beaten. They have him mocked. They place a a crown of thorns on his head to mock him as he's claimed to be a king. And then they beat him. They spit on him. They give him a cross. They throw him in the streets and they make him march through public, stripped, and then up on top of a hill, where he will be crucified. And throughout this whole process, we see that Jesus utters not a word. At no point does he say, hey guys, maybe we should slow this down. I got some problems with this trial. Where's my lawyer? At no point does he make a defense for himself because he knows in his silence, he is going to silence death. And he does that for us. He doesn't fight the cross. Instead, he dies for that very council. He dies for the very men who said he wasn't God, who charged him of wrong things. He dies for Peter, who denied him. He dies for Judas, who betrayed him. He dies for the disciples who split and ran away from him. He died for the soldiers that mocked him and beat him. He died for the crowd that spat upon him. He died for you. He died for me. And in his silence, we see his love for us. There's no louder silence in history than to see this innocent man go to his death on our behalf. It's a loudest silence in history. So then as we, we read through, as we read through the Bible, there's, this isn't the only trial we get to in scripture. If you were to hop over to the book of Revelation, which is a vision that the disciple John records and he writes down, there's another, another vision he's given where he sees what is kind of like trial imagery, the imagery of a trial. There's Jesus on the throne and in front of the throne these books are laid open and we're told one book is the book of life. And then John talks about the ones that are on trial. We hear that it's the dead, that the sea gives up its dead, that the dead of all all time are now lined up at this throne and they're about to be judged. And we're told in this moment, in this trial, it's the, the trial for eternity. Will the dead, will we spend eternity in heaven, the new heaven, the new earth with Jesus, or in hell, eternal death, the lake of fire that Revelation talks about as the second death? It's our trial. And we're told earlier in the book of Revelation, in Revelation three, five, we're told this, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Jesus is quiet at his own trial, but he speaks up at ours. Jesus is silent when he is facing death, but when we are facing our eternal destiny, he is very loud and he says, I will confess your name. I'll call out before my father on your behalf if your name is in my book, written with the blood of the lamb for the people who've given their lives and their sins up to Jesus and said, he is my king. He is my God. I will worship him and I will follow him. And that earns your name in the book of life, not because of what we did, just because of what we decided. But it's because of what Jesus did on the cross, defeating the grave and raising up again to have life eternally. So that when we are on trial for our eternal judgment, we won't have to say a word because Jesus already said it. He said it on the cross and he said it at his trial in silence. And so today we're left with this question. It's the same question that the book of Mark has asked over and over and over again. Who is this man? We've got to answer that for ourselves. Who is Jesus? Not in terms of history, not in terms of the Bible, but in terms of me. Who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to you? Will you declare him as your king? Will you declare him as your savior? Or will you decide he's not? Will you take the side of the council and say, this guy was was blasphemous, this guy was a fake, he was a fraud, he wasn't real. Who is Jesus to you? As we move to communion, I want to have just a little bit different, as much as we can this morning. I want to have a time of silence to allow us to reflect on Jesus' silence at his trial. To reflect on the silence of Jesus as he went to the cross. So there's tables at the kind of back in the corners of the room. And on the tables, there's a bowl with little cups. And these cups, as much as we're gonna try and be quiet, they're loud, they sound like scotch tape, right? But then there's a little wafer and there's some juice that represent the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus poured out for us. It represents his sacrifice for us. And I wanna invite you, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, to come and have communion. But let's do it in silence today. Reflecting on the silence that Jesus had for us. Reflecting on what it is we need to be forgiven by him. All the things we should cry out to him. All the things that should have put us in his place instead of him in our place. And reflecting on what that silence brought to us. That the fact that one day we will be judged based off of our lives. Based off of whether or not we gave ourselves to Jesus. And we know that in that day, Jesus will speak for us. And so I wanna just invite you to have a time of silence as we go to communion. So maybe you wanna spend a little extra prayer time in your chair or go grab the cup and come back. We're just gonna be quiet. I'm gonna invite you to pray, but most of all to answer the question, who is Jesus to you? Let me pray for us. God, as we approach your table this morning, let us hear the loudest silence in history. The silence of Jesus, not making a defense for himself, not trying to run from the cross, but instead God standing for us, standing in our place. And we thank you, God, that because of his silence, death would be silenced that our sin would be silenced. And on the day when we stand before your throne to be judged, if we've given our lives over to you, that our name will be in your book and that Jesus will speak on our behalf. God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus and his silence. Amen. Amen.